news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, we're skipping into today's podcast with some fabulous news. We're open to submissions again for the Books with Hook segment from October to December. To submit your work for consideration, please go to the podcast page on my website, biancamaray.com, to complete a form and upload your work. Now, you'll have a choice of which agent you'd like to submit to, because we'll be having guest agents on the podcast to look at queries in genres that Carly and C don't work in. You'll also have the option of choosing whether you'd like to be a guest on the podcast during a special show to discuss your work with Carly and Cece, something that we'll be doing occasionally just to mix it up, or if you'd like your work discussed in a standard episode without you being on the show. We'll also be offering special content to our monthly supporters on Ko-fi who will have access to written critiqued work from each episode, which offers more detailed critique than we're able to offer on the podcast. This includes edits and comments on a line level. You as the author will also get this additional content if you give us permission to share it on our Kofi platform. But if you don't want it shared, no problem. It won't affect your chances of having your work chosen. We just really appreciate our Kofi podcast supporters and would like to reward
reward them with more additional content going forward. We're going to be very strict about our six page limit, one page for your query letter and five pages for your work, which must be 12 point font and double spaced. The query letter can be a different format, but the pages must be double spaced and 12 point font. If they aren't, we won't consider your work. Now, due to the huge volume of submissions we receive, we unfortunately can't be in touch with everyone about their submission, even though we really, really want to. So we only going to be in touch with you if your submission is chosen for the show. So once again, go to the podcast page on my website, biancamaray.com, and you can register for the segment there. We're really looking forward to reading your work. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. We are going to meander our way into it, and we will begin with Carly reading our first query letter. Dear Cecilia and Carly, thank you for taking the time to do this, and I would be remiss not to thank Bianca as well. Title R is my debut commercial novel at 70,000 words. It gives both the male and female POV in the relationship as well as, to a lesser degree, the POV of the antagonist. I believe fans of Tracy Jarvis Graves, The Girl He Used to Know, and Sally Rooney's Normal People will enjoy my novel as well. A coin or two is all Michel wants when he approaches a middle-aged couple for a handout. Instead, he comes face-to-face with the only woman he's ever loved. Homeless and struggling to survive on the streets of Paris, Michel is convinced he deserves no better. 25 years earlier, he let the life of his dreams crumble around him after an act of betrayal by the two people he trusted most in the world. Catalina's one regret in life is that she never got to tell Michelle what really happened that fateful night their worlds fell apart. Decades earlier, Catalina, a Brazilian-American student at the Beaux-Arts, not only falls in love with the City of Light, she falls hard for the shy French pilot. Life in Paris is everything she imagined except for two secrets she keeps from Michelle. She's overstayed her student visa and his best friend is harassing her. Guy's infatuation with Catalina turns to obsession because what Michelle has, Guy wants. Michelle, after all, stole his childhood dream. As far back as Guy can remember, he is going to be a pilot, not Michelle. When Michelle got his wings and Guy didn't, jealousy soon turns to hate and Guy has plenty to hate. He hates his life, his job, his parents, and Michelle. Now, decades later on the banks of the Seine, fate brings Michelle and Catalina together again, but timing in life is everything and sometimes what seems wrong is right. Paris is home where I have lived the longest. Before COVID, you could find me writing at my favorite cafe with a glass of wine nearby. That cafe has now become my kitchen. My editing, however, is still done in my small office where I consume plenty of green tea. I have a mailing list of 4,000 email addresses of acquaintances and francophiles interested in reading about Title R. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, RRH. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Cece, why don't you give us your thoughts on that query letter? All right. Well, thank you to the writer for sharing this. I thought that in terms of the first paragraph, the line that starts with, it gives both the male and the female POV in a relationship. I thought that that could be said a little bit more elegantly. Perhaps it gives you two sides of a love story, um, or I don't know. I can't, I can't quite quite fix it, but I can. I could tell that it was a bit dry. So I would say it in a way that's a bit more enticing, a bit, you know, more curiosity peaking. As well, I love Normal People by Sally Rooney. I'm a huge Sally Rooney fan. And, you know, I'll point out that Sally Rooney, or, or sorry, Normal People is literary fiction. So my question is, is it intentional that you're comping outside of your genre? Because if so, I'd be, you know, curious to know why. Typically when we, when we agents read query letters, we're looking for comps that will tell us where this book would be shelved in a bookstore, right? Like where exactly, like for fans of this or for fans of that. So that that got me curious. 
I love the inciting incident. I think it's very interesting, right? Like the idea of somebody who's experiencing homelessness coming face to face with this woman he hasn't seen in years, who's the love of his life. And there's all this drama and mystery there. That really, really makes me curious. So great inciting incident. The problem with the query letter, in my opinion, is that after you've described the great inciting incident, you don't escalate tension. Like, again, in terms of the plot paragraph, your job is to say inciting incident, escalating tension, leading up to the climax, and then keep us wanting more. However, what we get instead, again, in my view, is quite vague. So we get things like, let the life of his dreams crumble around him, act of betrayal. The next paragraph, that fateful night the world fell apart. These are all really, really, really vague references to something that I still don't un- quite understand. Plus, and this is even more important, it's backstory. It's three paragraphs of backstory. And then the very last plot paragraph that starts with now, decades later, then we go back to the inciting incidents. So think about it this way. Your query letter started with the great inciting incident. You gave me a whole bunch of backstory, half of which was vague. And then you went back to the inciting incident. Don't do this to me. Like, I want you to keep the story moving forward. It is the story forward rule that we talk about here in books with hooks. So I would rewrite this with that in mind. If, if this were me, this is what I would do. I hope this is helpful. Awesome. Cece, thanks. Carly, what were your thoughts? I agree. I actually think this is a literary novel. I don't think this is a commercial novel. As was, Cece was saying with these comps, the, the, again, we, it, this whole query focuses on backstory and premise and inciting incident. We're not getting any of that commercial propulsion that we actually need for a commercial novel, right? So I actually think this is literary, not commercial, because I'm just not seeing where it would fit in terms of commercial fiction. I also agree with Cece, that line, it gives both the male and female POV in the relationship, that line, it doesn't deserve top billing, right? Like, think about this is real estate, right? Like this, where's your curb appeal here, right? Like this is not it. This is not happening. So we really just need to like strike that through, move it down. I also think Sally Rooney's Normal People is comped too much. Like I just think it's kind of like not a good comp at this point. It's kind of become one of those like brand identity things where it does not really actually a comp anymore. It's more of like an aspiration. So I probably wouldn't comp that necessarily. And I know everybody who's listening can't see this query, but the way that the person wrote the query is that they capitalized the names of the characters and that is a synopsis technique that's not a query technique so make sure you don't fully capitalize the the names of characters overall I just thought it was too vague a lot of backstory and I just wasn't really sure what's happening in the present right other than this really great inciting incident I actually need to know what's going on and that's what would make this novel commercial because right now this seems quite quiet to me thanks Carly all right Cece what did you think of those opening pages would you give us a bit of an understanding of what was contained in them Yes, let's do this. So we have a great timestamp right in the beginning. It says Paris, September 2010. Love the timestamp. And we see Michel, 59 years old. He is an unhoused resident and he asks for a euro for food to this couple. And the woman urges her, we assume husband, I assumed husband, the man she's with, to give this person a euro, right? And the man is quite nasty and just not a very good person saying really, really inappropriate things. But the lady ignores the man, gives the man a euro. And as it turns out, and we know this based on the query letter, the unhoused resident is Michelle and the woman is Catalina. And 
she goes, Mitch, it's me, Catalina. And he pretends like he is not Michelle. And then, you know, Michelle, we get a lot of inner life where Michelle is thinking about how, you know, he has spent years and years and years thinking about Catalina and he runs into her, but their encounter doesn't like she, she leaves. It's not like, you know, she still hangs out there. So I like to say that, first of all, I agree. Paris in late September is Paris at, at its best. I would think to myself in terms of like line notes, you are repeating yourself a lot. So for example, um, there's a line that says, after all, he had envisioned this encounter thousands of times, but the shock in her eyes told him this was no daydream. And then later down, you say every day for close to 30 years, he dreamed of a chance encounter with Catalina. And you say that again at the very last page. So there's a quite a bit, a lot of repetition. I would revise for that, keep an eye out, try to be a really, really ruthless editor when it comes to, to spotting those, those repetitions. In my big picture note here that to be honest, really bothered me, but perhaps it's intentional. And if it's intentional, it's okay. Is that we are supposed to believe that this man, that Michelle is madly in love with Catalina, right? Like he has been thinking about her every day of his life for decades. And when he sees her, all he pays attention to is her appearance. Like there's this whole paragraph on how Latina women don't age well. Um, (laughs) I'm personally offended by that. And like, he just sounds like such a jerk. Like, quite frankly, he's like observing women like as though they were, I don't know, like, it's just, it's, it's really bad. It's all he can think about is her, her looks, uh, whether her curves are still her curves or her lips aren't as full anymore. And I don't buy it. You, you're in love with someone and you see them for the first time after years. Yes, of course, you're going to look at their appearance and that's fine. That's more than fine, actually. But you're not going to remember the way she, I don't know, interrupted you whenever you made a point that perhaps wasn't the point you should be making. You're not going to remember her temper. You're not going to remember the way she danced. You're not going to remember the her scent. Like there's There's nothing here to take me down memory lane with you and to make me feel the love that you feel for her, you, Michelle, the character. So I don't know. I think you have a really inciting incident, but I think that instead of developing that and escalating the tensions, you let it fizzle out. So I personally would provide, unless, like I said, unless it's intentional that he is this superficial jerk who only sees women for their appearances. Awesome. Thanks, Cece. Carly, what was your take on that? A lot of the same. I agree with Cece. I had uh, written down a note there about the Latina comment. Obviously, that's generalizing and completely unfair. So quite unlikable comment. And yeah, overall, again, this just reinforced for me that this is a literary novel. Like, I'm just not seeing what is commercial about it. That doesn't, we're, we're not saying commercial good, commercial bad, literary good, literary bad. We're not assigning feelings towards those those genres or those categories, but we do need to be able to place that, right? I was feeling, on top of everything Cece said, which I agree with, I was feeling a real lack of confidence from this author because one of the reasons is that I don't know if I believed that we were in Paris. And there were things like, like, what are we providing for the reader's sake versus what are we providing for the character's sake? Like, for example, this is this kind of third person kind of point of view. And it's in this line about Michel returned to his tent and lowered himself to the ground where I'm assuming his, um, his, his shelter was. And then it says the Cathedral of Notre Dame loomed in the background. But like a Parisian wouldn't say the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Like you would say Notre Dame or whatever the Parisians would say about this cathedral that, you know, is a huge part of their life. Right. So 
So just little things like that to me. And it just felt like a lack of confidence. Another thing was there was some high, uh, sorry, some italics of French words, but then sometimes they were italicized and sometimes they weren't. And so like, for example, the word key, which is Q-U-A-I, you pronounce that key. And so like sometimes it's italicized, sometimes it's not. Like I just didn't really get the sense that this author even felt like they were writing Paris. Like I just kind of felt like I really just wanted a lot more confidence from the author about the kind of stance they were making. And I also just felt a lot of repetition. So, you know, it just feels like, you know, this is a beginner starting out on their path, but this inciting incident is great. So, you know, there's something to work with here, but you know, we're working with a newbie and and that's okay. Awesome. Carly, thank you. Right. Cece, would you like to read the second query letter for us? Dear Ms. Lira, I so appreciate the generous and helpful advice you, Carly and Bianca share on the shit no one tells you about writing podcast. I always learn so much from each episode. I also want to thank you for your Twitter post recommending Chiara Alegria Hudis's moving memoir, My Broken Language. I practically inhaled it. As I'm also a mixed race Latinx, I was excited to learn that you are interested in elevating underrepresented voices. I hope you will consider my memoir, Almost Cuban. This completed 76,000 word manuscript is comparable to Anthony Shadid's House of Stone, a memoir of home, family, and the lost Middle Earth, Richard Blanco's The Prince of Los Cocuyos, and Under the Tuscan Sun by Francis Mace, both the book and the movie. I am sharing the first five pages of the manuscript below. Born and raised in the U.S., but hoping to reconnect with her Cuban heritage, New York City-based artist Katerina embarks on a legal-ish purchase and renovation of a century-old apartment in Havana during the Cuban thaw of 2015 to 2017. She quickly finds she is unprepared for construction in a communist country that lacks basic supplies, internet service, and access to ATMs. With humor and humility, Katerina has to adapt to a different way of thinking, doing, and being as she learns to navigate the complicated Cuban real estate system, hide ceiling fans in her luggage, and buy bootleg paint scooped into trash bags. Having felt like a culture imposter since she was a child, Katerina not only builds a home, but a life there too, thanks to family and new friends. Along the way, she deepens her relationship with her mother, an expat in Florida who was just cut off from her family for 19 years during the Cold War, and unexpectedly begins to understand not just the Cuban, but also the Chinese and American cultures she inherited and embodies. Almost Cuban reveals a rare view of contemporary life in Cuba that avoids political polemics and nostalgic tropes of a country lost in time. It is a vivid, lyric love letter to the quest to understand one's identity, to a family torn apart by global politics, and to a 500-year-old city caught up in the promise of that brief period. Resonating with hope, discovery, and renewal, this is a story for anyone who yearns to come home to their cultural ancestors history, is enticed by this forbidden country, or just loves to binge on HGTV's Renovation Island. I've written several articles on U.S.-Cuba relations for the Miami Herald and the New York Daily News, as well as had essays published in literary journals and academic publications, including Brain Mill Press, Under the Gumtree, and the Bronx Memoir Project Anthology, Volume 3. My published pieces can be found on my website. In addition to taking 
taking Gotham Writers Workshop classes. I have an MFA in Visual Arts from the University of Maryland and a Master of Theological Studies focused on Buddhism from the Harvard Divinity School. I currently live in an undisclosed location with my rescue pup, Huck. On a closing note, I've worked as a VP at a global PR agency and understand the importance of marketing. Please know I'm prepared to be entrepreneurial about promoting this book to drive sales and visibility for years to come. I've already secured a jacket endorsement by unnamed writer, the New York Times bestselling author of We Are Not Going to Tell You What, and have a list of journalists and outlets to approach. Thank you for considering Almost Cupid. I hope to have the pleasure of speaking with you soon. Sincerely, Katerina. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Carly, what was your take on the query letter? Overall, I love this concept and, and I really like that the author was honing in on, you know, this is a story for anyone who yearns to come home and cultural ancestry and enticed by forbidden country. Like I love all those sorts of themes. But one of the things I was concerned about with this is like, what are we working towards as a climax? You know, like, is there something going to go wrong with the house? Is there, is she going to get sent back to the States? Like, what is at stake here? Like, I really love these, these themes of exploration of identity and home and feeling and community and all of those wonderful things. And I mean this in the nicest way possible, but I, but we're talking about a business, right? Like writing is writing and publishing is publishing. So I'm saying like, so what, you know, like what's at stake here? You know, why does the writer, or why does the consumer, sorry, have to pick this book up as opposed to other books about cultural identity, right? And so memoir needs that big hook in order to be published by a big five imprint. And as agents, we're really focused on big memoirs, right? So I love everything about this. And if, and if something's hidden that I'm not seeing, please, you know, put that in there and explain to us like what's happening in the present what drama are we working towards what's the climax you know is there some sort of something as i said whether it's the structure itself having to be sent home a personal crisis um, a hurricane coming through right like what what is this looming thing in the distance that's coming at us in terms of the sequential timeline of what we're working towards because otherwise i'm a little bit worried like this is an essay and not a book do you know what i mean so that's kind of my main my main critique but I mean this with love because I really do think this is an absolutely fascinating hook, fascinating hook. But I think that the query might not be doing the book justice. Some Carly, thank you. Cece, what were your thoughts? Absolutely agree with the placement. And I also say this with all the love in the world. It's, you know, Carly hit the nail on the head when she said writing is writing and publishing is publishing and the latter is a business. Sometimes a memoir isn't meant to be a book. Sometimes it's an essay. Sometimes it's I don't know, a podcast episode. And sometimes it is a book, but when it is, it needs to fit a subgenre. I say this all the time. Memoir is a genre, but all memoirs have a subgenre. And that subgenre can be found by um, identifying its equivalent in fiction. So for example, My Broken Language, which is so good. Shout out to Kiara. I say this like I know the woman. I do not, but it is literary fiction. I don't think that book has a climax, if we're being perfectly honest. I, I've read it twice now, and it's fine that it doesn't have a climax because A, the sentences are beautiful. You just want to inhale those sentences. But also, she's, I think, I'm pretty sure, a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. She wrote In the Heights. Like, it's 
fine. <laughs> she can write whatever she wants and it'll get published and it'll sell really well because she's, you know, a genius with impressive credentials. It's important to understand what the subgenre of your memoir is. And sometimes if you're a lawyer and you're writing the story of a, a case you cracked, it might be a legal thriller. That might be your subgenre. If you are, you know, writing about the renovation of a house, it might be a family saga with commercial fiction sprinkled in. And, and whatever it is, identifying that is important. And unless it's literary fiction, you need a climax. You need something that's, you know, oh my gosh, what is this all leading up to? And quite frankly, perhaps even in literary fiction, you also need a climax, but it's a little less important. I loved everything about the themes. Loved, loved, loved. I love small things too, like the fact that you refer to um, your mom as an expat. I love that. I have I, you, I could talk for hours about the difference between expat and immigrants on, and how people use that word in ways to pigeonhole others. And I love what you did here. Small things that, by the way, I really, really love for anyone listening. If you're going to mention your publications, I love it when people italicize the names of the places where you were published, right? Like the Miami Herald, you italicize that. And it just makes readability so much easier. I love the mention of your rescue pup, Huck. I essentially wanted to know what is this leading up to? I wanted to know the climax. So like Carly said, that's what I was looking for. And it doesn't mean that you don't have that. It just is not in the query letter right now. I was actually marveling this week. I was reading Miriam Taves's Fight Night. And I was just thinking, it's, it's such an amazing book. But if anyone else had written it, it would not have been published. There isn't even an inciting incident in this book. There is nothing, nothing happening in this book at all. But it is just positively delightful. But only Miriam Taves could have gotten this book published. Okay, Carly, what were your thoughts on those opening pages? Just for a little recap for everybody, we have a prologue that kind of just summarizes what happens in the query letter, like kind of just explains the, the premise itself. And then we have chapter one, which is going back to 1979, when this author was 13 and kind of going back to Cuba. So those are kind of our, our two scenes here. So I overall, I felt this prologue, as I said, was kind of just recapping the query. And if this eventually becomes a book, which obviously we hope that it does, there will be back cover copy, you know, there will be a summary of the book on the book. So I really just felt like we're just kind of covering territory that we've already covered. So I really do think we need to start in scene a little bit more. I'm probably taking Cece's words out of her mouth right now because we're really just covering a lot of loose ground about how this person feels about this house and the 50th birthday and you know all, all of these things which again I think we're, we're going to cover in a book jacket I don't think we need to cover it in the prologue okay and then chapter one is as I said we're kind of we're going back to where the mother is from and you know they're staying with family and, and there's this 13 year old protagonist here with her twin sisters that are 10 so we're just getting like this like family journey back um, back in time I really really liked this scene because it was a lot of like the fish out of water right like you're coming back to the quote-unquote homeland and you know meeting people that you've never met for the first time and I can imagine what that would be like like having people hug you being like I don't know who you are but like I know we're family and blood matters and I just I really loved that I really loved all of the kind of emotions that that would really um, drag up so I I really really liked chapter one I was just really lukewarm to the prologue. What did you think, Cece? I agree. So here's the thing. With the prologue, it felt like a journalist wrote this, which is not a bad thing in the sense that, right, like journalists can write really well, but you're supposed to be a storyteller and not a journalist. And as a storyteller, you have to manipulate the reader in a way that will keep them satisfied and keep them wanting more to a degree that a journalist does not have to preoccupy themselves with. 
Um, even if you're writing an opinion column, it's much more straightforward, especially because it's shorter, right? So you don't have to keep someone hooked and immersed. And 100%, you did take the words out of my mouth, Carly. Like, I wanted to be immersed in scene. I didn't want this roundup of feelings. I, I want to be seduced by a narrative. I don't want the facts to be laid out to me. I read this. And when I read Mango Trees, I could taste mangoes in my mouth. And I love that. So do that, right? Immerse me in a scene with the trees or, or, or with something else. That's fine. I also, and this is totally a personal preference. This is not something that you should not advice that I'm giving you. This is just like something that I'm sharing. And you tell me whether this resonates with you or not. I don't think you should translate certain words, most words, in fact, like if it's a full sentence, then perhaps because otherwise the reader will understand. But things like um, there's a there's a sentence where you say, and now someone like me, M dash, una extranjera, a foreigner, close M dash, had appeared to help them escape to something better. You don't have to translate una extranjera to a foreigner. You just don't have to. Like we get it. First of all, readers have Google. Second of all, I think they would get it based on the concept. This is my personal preference. This is not something that you should do if it does not resonate with you. I also think that whenever you talk about like your dad spinning tales about his village back in China or your mom showing his black and white photos, I need to know what the tone is. Like for first generation immigrants, especially how your parents, especially if they're both immigrants, see their homelands, it frames everything for you from a psychological perspective. I know people whose parents refuse to acknowledge that them, the kids, were even like somewhat different from mainstream, right? Like it's like you were born here, you're American or you're Canadian, forget everything. Egypt isn't your homeland or China isn't your homeland or Brazil isn't your homeland. And they, they, they will share stories, but it will share stories with a degree of detachment and removal so as to keep the kids fully convinced that they they do not have any attachments to these these lands, right? And of course, they do this to protect the children. It's very obvious. And I know people who won't stop talking about their homelands in the sense of it's so much better there. Oh my gosh, you have to taste fruit here. Fruit is so much better. And this is so much better. And, and I know people who do, you know, this is obviously like a spectrum, but the tone that your parents share those tales is very important. And this is one of the examples of how you were generalistic. You shared the sharp visuals, but you didn't share the inner life. You didn't share... I didn't feel like I was a child listening to my parents spin tales because I would only feel that way if you had added emotionality. So you were doing a lot of explaining and instead of writing in the emotion that I needed here, which I get why, right? Like, but at the end of the chapter, especially the first chapter, the reader must be asking questions. I say this all the time, like, and these questions should be specific and curiosity inducing. And what questions do you want us to be asking here? Because all I have is... Will she belong, which is too big. That's a question for the whole book. I mean, I guess I also have, will she finish building the apartment? But again, this is not an actual HGTV episode. So that's not like enough to keep us like, oh my gosh, I have, because there's no emotional attachment to the apartment that will connect to the character's stakes, right? So again, I kept highlighting a whole bunch of things. So if you were to see my line notes for this, you would see so much because there was so much that was working and so much that I was like, I want more. And I think the fact that I'm asking you for more speaks to the potential in your project. I wouldn't be asking for more if there weren't potential here, right? So those are my notes. Awesome. Cece, thank you. Right. I'm going to read our third query letter. 
Dear Carly and Cece, I really enjoy your tag team commentary on Bianca's podcast. Your log line should read differently lovely agents making learning fun. I read that you are looking for well-paced fiction, great characters, dysfunctional families, and moral dilemmas. And I'm excited to present my thriller, Panhandling, at 86,000 words about murder, revenge, and family secrets. Salted with wit. Imagine the murder haunted by the past of the Survivors by Jane Harper meets the sarcastic hilarity of Carl Hyacinth. It will appeal to readers of Sunshine State and Rigged by D.P. Lyle and Jackal by Kelly Oliver. The coroner declares it death by flying coconut, but Jack Dawson's engineering eyes see murder by hurricane. Jack blames himself for a freak accident that took his child and wife and only wants to hide from humanity. But when duty compels him to assist the search and rescue operation, Jack is sucked into the orbit of people who want a piece of him. The greedy coastal developer getting whacked shouldn't be his problem, but Jack's blasted integrity bites him in the rear. He opens his big mouth and gets drawn into helping the dead guy's granddaughter win the gazillion dollar estate. The press is all over the win and jumps on the romance angle between Jack and the heiress. So does the heiress. Jack's knowledge puts a laser dot on his forehead. Death is not a problem for him, but he'll be damned if he's going to let the murderers steal his could-be lover's estate. I practiced structural engineering for 30 years in Alabama, and similar to CC, I am in recovery. I spent as many years vacationing on the panhandle. Panhandling is standalone and the first of a proposed series. I look forward to hearing from you, Len. Okay, Carly, would you like to give us your thoughts on that query letter? Yeah, and earlier on in the podcast, I talked about how important the real estate is in a query letter, and I really liked this bit panhandling 86,000 words about murder revenge and family secrets salted with wit like that's a really good example of you have some real estate at the top how are you going to use it the most you know obviously this is a bit vague but it's part of the hook so I just wanted to kind of emphasize how that part works overall I found this query incredibly confusing because I wasn't sure what was literal and what was not, right? We're talking about wit and, and and what is funny, what some people think is funny. You know, are you sarcastic? I don't know. I've never met you, right? So I don't know kind of what is happening <laughs> as much as I would like to know what is happening. So overall, I think I would just rewrite this in a way that just kind of lets us know more straightforward what is happening, right? There's a time to use voice. There's a time to kind of play with tone. I just don't think the query letter is the time to do that. So that's kind of my, my overall overall advice. I don't think there's anything, you know, wrong with the positioning. I don't think there's anything wrong with the hook. It's more just, I don't think we're writing this in a clear enough way. And there's two examples of um, some word choice and some sentences I would probably rewrite. Number one, obviously we, we love when everybody is so flattering about us on the podcast, of course, but it says your log line should read differently. Lovely agents make learning fun. I'm like, I don't really know what that means. It sounds lovely, but I don't really know what that means. And then there was a line that said, and similar to Cece, I'm in recovery. I'm like, that kind of makes Cece sound like she's in AA or NA, which it is perfectly fine to be an NA, NAA, but you don't kind of want to call somebody out for being an NA or AA. So I would probably rewrite that as well. Thanks, Carly. Cece, what was your take on that? I, I agree with Carly. What's what's the drinking game? We drink when we're confused. Um, <laughs> I have coffee in front of me, so I'm, I'm <sighs> sipping. I Listen, I, I like the title. I like panhandling. It made me curious. But you tell me this is a thriller. And the query letter is written like a quirky 
rom-com almost like it's it the language it's stuff like jack's blasted integrity bites him in the rear and granddaughter win the gazillion dollar estate like gazillion is not an actual you know amount jack's knowledge puts a laser dot on his forehead like i couldn't help but read this as light and funny and and i i, I don't know like a thriller for me, I'm supposed to be like tense. I'm supposed to be, you know, on the edge of my seat. I'm supposed to be nervous and fearing for the character. That's essential in a thriller, right? Like you have to fear for the protagonist. And this just seems very, very light. And maybe it's intentional that the author does say that, you know, sarcastic hilarity and will appeal to readers or sorry, not this part, but the part where he says salted with wit. But there's a difference between like anything can be funny, Right. You can add humor to any genre and still stay within that genre. But when the tone is 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 quirky and light and 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 silly, almost like not in a bad way, silly. Um, but then I don't think it's a thriller. So and having read the pages, like like I kind of agree. I thought that the plot paragraph, because that's always the part that I focus on. Right. Like I want to be sucked into the story. I thought the plot paragraph could use with a little bit more specificity. Things like sucked into the orbit of people who want a piece of him. What does that mean? I'm drinking my coffee here many, many times. Like what, what does sucked into the orbit mean specifically? And why do they want a piece of him? Like what, like what piece exactly? Like, what are we talking about? I felt like I could use a little bit more specificity and a little less colorful language. I like voice and queries. We have established in the podcast that to be safe, don't do it. Just keep the, keep the query letter as a business letter, right? Like stick to the facts, stick to the climax. But if you're going to do it, the voice should match the voice of your genre. And this is very quirky and very funny and very light and not at all thriller-esque in, in my opinion. So yeah, those are my notes. Awesome. Cece, thank you. Carly, what was your take on those opening pages? We have a very dramatic opening here. We have um, a hurricane coming in. So I, I thought we're starting off with some really high stakes here. We have an old man in his house thinking he's secure with his hurricane. And he's like, we don't know how old he is. We just have like old man. So I don't know how old this man is. Can he, is he in a wheelchair? Is like, by whose standards is he old? But we have an old man kind of bunkering down, fighting off the hurricane at home. And then I actually have a question here at the end of this, but basically, the hurricane rips through and it's a really you know short like page and a half scene which I really like but the hurricane rips through and the house that he thought was secure is not secure but I have a question so at the end of this it says a high-speed coconut crushed in the side of the head did that mean that it knocked him out did it like literally crush him in the head like I was again these like really specific word choices matter a lot to me because if you say a high-speed coconut crushed in the side of the head crushed who where to again did this kill him did it just like i don't know braise his hairline like i'm just again the specificity of word choice is really important here i want to know did he die basically <laughs> you know in this opening scene and if you presented a character just to kill him i'm very confused about that specific choice because again it, we don't have any bonding here to anybody if if you present a character and he dies in a page and a half then we meet who presumably is the engineer who designed this house 
which this house failed and we meet him and he's been able to make it through the storm. He's saying like, oh, my, my house is fine. But then there's a line and I don't know if I highlighted it. Maybe Cece did about him saying that he's had some like mishaps at work. And then I think we're supposed to assume that one of his mishaps was maybe he didn't do the best job with that other house. But I'm a little bit, again, confused um, about that. And then the real thing that got me with this um, this opener of chapter two with the with the engineer is that the sheriff comes by kind of like checking things and to me like if this hurricane was that bad like would the would the sheriff just be going door to door checking on people in a very casual way and he says to the engineer like yeah you know i need you to go you know check on these other houses and see how people are doing like how big is this community wouldn't protocols be in place that are very specific at this day and age of hurricane protocol of like this happens then this happens like it just doesn't seem the the casualness paired with the severity of the hurricane really just seemed off balance to me so I was really just feeling off balance for the whole thing I just want to echo that and like I feel like the sense of urgency wasn't there right and come on the sense of urgency should be there it's an emergency so in terms of the chapter one which is I don't know I, I, I thought of it as a prologue almost but in terms of the chapter one is it intentional that you wrote air tense with promised violence because I thought it should be dense. I mean, both are right, but like air density is a thing. There, In the second paragraph, I think there's a verb tense slip situation going on because he's saying he could go to his hurricane-proof 20th floor. He could take the jet. But if the storm is already there, and it is because that's been established, even the uber wealthy can't fly if a hurricane is imminent. Like if the hurricane is already happening, you can't get on a plane. So I think you mean like he could have gone, right? Like he could have taken the jet. So I would watch for that. I really think this needs a timestamp with place. Like I, I, I wanted to know that I didn't, I was, especially because he was talking about traveling, right? So I just, I wanted to know where we were, like what specific beach. He mentions that, you know, he's not going to hide from a little blow. And then in the next paragraph, he refers to it as the bullseye of a category five monster. So which one is it? Like I was confused, drinking coffee, drinking lots of coffee. Fourth chapter one, big picture. I think we need another layer. We need a mystery, something he's hiding, a secret, something else. It can't just be about him sitting there waiting for the storm and dying. It's too straightforward. Um, and it's not in keeping with the story forward rule of wanting uh, us to, you know, to want more, to, to find out what's going to happen next. In terms of chapter two, I thought the dialogue was a little info dumpy. Uh, here's an example. Um, he's talking, you know, Jack, Ron Chapman here, heard your cabin, came through with flying colors, over. And, you know, he says, it'd be bad, it'd be a bad look if a structural engineer's own house got nailed. And then, and then he responds, yeah, no gold star for me either, since I inspected it. Like, I don't think they would, they would say this. I don't think this sounds quite natural. Also, he gets called to help right? Like, how does he feel about that? I want that emotionality woven in. Like, does he need to be needed? Some people, like when they get called in to help, they feel so positive because they they have this sense of, I want to be productive. I want to be needed. I want to be to, to be of service. And some people are annoyed. And I just, I wanted to know what his emotionality was specifically. And I wanted to know the tone when he was talking to Ron. Ron tells him, Jack, you're not going to go into any buildings. Understood. I can't have a civilian getting hurt. And he says, I hear you. What is the tone of that? I hear you. Is he like, I hear you. I'm still going to go in anyway in his tone. Or is he like, no, I hear you. Like, is he taking it serious? Like, I, I just wanted to know more. I needed another layer. When at the very end, when Carlos pulls out his wallet and extracts a photo of his three 
three young children. That dates the story, right? Because nobody actually carries pictures in his wallet anymore. And if they do, it's quirky and that should be noted. So is that intentional? Are you intentionally dating the story? But most of all, and again, this is the big picture note I had in the query letter. And I'm so glad that I mute myself. Like while Carly's chatting and Bianca's chatting, I mute myself and we all mute each ourselves. I was laughing so much when Carly was talking about the coconut because come on, it's hilarious. Like I can't stop laughing at this thing. Like if you want me to be laughing because something is silly, great mission accomplished. But if it's a thriller, I don't think that's what you want. You want layers of tension. You want surface tension, shallow water tension, deep water tension. You want all the tension. Let's picture of the deep sea that we learn in school where you see all the layers of the sea in blue. That is what you need, but with tension. So I, I, I'm not getting tension here. I'm getting humor and hilarity, which is okay I, too. I think there's a definite dark comedy element, but I think the comps need to reflect that dark comedy absolutely like Fargo like there's a few things to comp maybe Fargo's not it but like you kind of got to go down that lane I think I agree but see even in Fargo and which is totally hilarious there's so many like like layers of tension and things that you want to go oh I wonder what he's hiding and I wonder what she's hiding and I have to wonder what people are hiding wonderful thanks Cece thanks Carly for another awesome books with hook segment next week we are deviating from the norm and we're going to have our author on the episode with us, after which we'll go back to our usual setup until further down the line when occasionally we will have authors on every now and again just to mix things up. Right, now let's go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. 
But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is a two-time National Book Award finalist and the New York Times bestselling author of three novels, The Monsters of Templeton, Arcadia, and Fates and Furies, and the celebrated short story collections Delicate Edible Birds and Florida. She has won the Story Prize, the Penn O'Henry Award, and been a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her work regularly appears in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and elsewhere, and she was named one of Granta's 2017 Best Young American Novelist. She lives in Gainesville, Florida, with her husband and sons. It's my pleasure to welcome Lauren Groff. Lauren, welcome to the show. What an absolute honor to get to chat to you today. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. And it's really early as well. So doubly thank you for that. (laughs) Right. So we're going to dive straight in. And the one thing that I'd like to immediately ask about is I've read in an interview that you gave that in the two years after Fates and Furies came out, you found yourself unable to write as you processed your feelings about the acclaim. Is this something that, you know, you felt you grappled with particularly because you're a woman writer or or do you think it was something else? Well, it wasn't that I wasn't able to write. I was able to write. I write every day. Um, I just wasn't able to write as well as I wanted to. And I, and I think sometimes this happens to me after a big project is finished just because the big project is out of me, right? I'm, I'm still trying to find the next thing that I want to be able to throw my life into. And that's what a novel is for me, right? Like it's, it's really just like a dedicated relationship for a long period of years. And not every idea is worthy of that time and that space and that energy. So it's not that I wasn't able to write. I just, you know, it was more, I just didn't like the things that I was writing. And, And I do feel like there's a large difference. I definitely don't think that I've ever had a problem with confidence um, about my own writing, especially not uh, as a woman. You know, I think that that is one of the things that I've I've never struggled with, really. Um, I do struggle with getting the right ideas or getting the right ideas in the right shape 
with the right words. Um, and that is the difficulty. But no, I, you know, and, and in fact, I would probably say that a lot of my life is uh, built around denying other people from taking away my, my power. And so I don't know if I would ever um, allow other people the right to, to take away my, um, my ability to write, uh, you know, success to take away my ability to write. That, that actually leads to the, to the next question, because I also read that you said you decided early on that writing would kind of be the immovable boulder at the center of everything. Um, and everything that came after work, marriage, even children would have to bend around it. And there was some interview in which you said before your first son was born, you drew up a contract with your husband delineating household chores and duties, ensuring your time would be walled off and sacred. And when I read that, I got goosebumps. And then I started cheering because that was just so amazing because I feel like that should be the template for all creative women because life tends to encroach on creative women's time more than it does with men. And that you set that up and you guarded that so fiercely is so encouraging and so inspiring for the rest of us. Could you tell us a bit about that? Sure. And I'm so happy to do this. And in fact, you know, when I do have students, I sit them down, especially the ones that are intending to have children. And I'm just like, listen, <laughs> if you want to have a creative life, consider um, uh, figuring out before you do have children, sort of the way that you're going to split um, the life. I think resentment kills the work as it does marriages often. And so sort of heading that off before it even becomes a problem is probably the best way to deal with it, or at least in, in my vision, in my life, in my family. That's what I've done. I think I had writing as the center of my life long before I had children. I was terrified of becoming the de facto, um, the de facto parent, the de facto head of household, which it seems to be the role that at least society throws on women. And um, unless I think one is very, very intentional about um, keeping things apart and, and sort of maintaining one's uh, space and time uh, for creative work, one can easily be sucked into that role. Um, because you want to be, right? Because you love your children and all you want to do is spend time with them, especially when they're just little, barely functional polyps uh, as babies. And so um, I did. I sat down with my husband and we sort of sussed out the way that it was going to go. And he is legitimately at least a 50% parent, probably more. I'm, I'm legitimately less in the role of parents. And it's because we, we did figure this out. Um, so one of the things that we figured out was that I was given the morning um, from before the kids were even born. And then when they were born, the day that we got home from the hospital, it, it started. Uh, I get up at five. I go up to my room with a, you know, a vat of coffee and I work. And so my husband is the one who gets up with the kids and got up with the babies, changes diapers, gets them ready for daycare or school um, or the babysitter, whatever. And I get the from five in the morning until they're back from wherever it is that they go. Now it's school. And and then, you know, I, I make dinner and everything too. So that's just the, the sort of the daily routine. And what that does is it it builds, a, it does, it builds a fortress around the work, right? It's, it's sort of an, an inviolable fortress. Everybody knows not to bother me in the morning. 
anything. I'm not involved in finding shoes and socks or in arguments or in making lunches. Like all of that is like everybody just knows that that's what my husband's in charge of. And um, it's ended up it's worked out fine. Great so far. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you've you've credited the fact that you're so pro- prolific with that compulsive routine and structuring your life in a way that ensures that that routine is maintained is, like you say, an amazing way to to protect the fortress of of the work. So that that's hugely inspiring, and I know it will be to to our listeners as well. So I want to talk about the moment when inspiration strikes. So you said you were sitting in a lecture theater at Harvard University in a lecture about medieval nuns when something caught your imagination and and you likened that feeling to a kind of tuning fork. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, so I think, you know, to back up just a little bit too, I think that the, the ground has to be prepared for ideas to strike like this. So the, the larger ground was that I have been in love with um, this actual person from history, Marie de France, who is the first female poet that we know of in French since, you know, I guess the 90s, the late 90s. Um, And I have tried through the years to do projects around her and failed. Um, But um, so that's the larger field. And then the shorter term field is that the night before I heard this lecture, I'd seen this 1940s film called The Women, just an amazing film. It's uh, the only characters in it are women. But of course, since it's the 1940s, the only thing they talk about are men. And while I love this film so much, I was still, I was very angered by this film at the same time too. And then, so the next day I sit down and I hear my friend, Dr. Katie Bugis, give this talk on the liturgy of medieval nuns, the nuns of the, the, um, the 12th century. And my mind was absolutely blown. And this long-term passion, this short-term, these two short-term ideas sort of combined together. And I had, as I was sitting there, this vision of a book that I had I had to write. And that book was Matrix, my, my new book. Uh, and in fact, I was working on a different one too. I work on multiple projects at once in general. Um, but I put this other book uh, to the side because I knew that Matrix was the thing that I had to actually just, just go into because I had seen this sort of dazzling vision of this book. It sounds like, yeah, that movie would not have passed the Bechdel test. And your writing definitely does. And, and I know <laughs> all of my novels, I try and, and pass that test as well. You know, so for our listeners, the Bechdel test looks at, you know, the representation of women in fiction and when they're represented, how much of their conversation and how much of what they're going through centers around men. How much do they talk about men and how much is, you know, their own lives, things that have got nothing to do with men. So I'm always cheering on novels that that pass that that test. You've said you write your first drafts longhand because if you write on a screen, it looks too much like typeset language and you don't feel like you can change it as much if you need to. As someone who has got the most appalling handwriting and who cannot even read her own grocery lists, I am fascinated by this. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. I too have appalling handwriting. And in fact, that's part of the process. So (laughs) um, I think, so my handwriting is egregious. And in fact, if I, if I don't look at what I've written for even a week, I have no idea what it is, right? (laughs) Just like I have no idea. 
But that's good for me. So I think that um, a lot of learning about your own process is learning about your own flaws as a human. <laughs> and one of my great, great flaws is that I, um, I want to be a perfectionist. And given any opportunity, I will do my best to try to be a perfectionist, uh, which is really, really harmful, I think, the early processes of my own work. Because what it needs in the beginning is exploration, joy, fun, um, the feeling of being a kid locked in to a like a toy store at night and like no there's no one around there are no lights on and you're just like taking toys off the shelf and like having the most fun sleeping in a pile of stuffed animals right like it's all it's all like joyous so in order to to feel as though I'm exploring I'm discovering I'm having a, a wonderful time I have to write longhand I have to uh, write fast first drafts, uh, just like let the momentum of storytelling carry me through. I have to play, uh, you know, and I and I really have to make sure that I'm I'm not like getting into in my own way. So so actually, you know, handwriting really is one of those things that helps me do that. It it kind of slows down my process, my my thinking, so that I'm not just sort of flitting from one thing to the other. The, you know, I, I physiologically I actually think that typing on a laptop is actually really harmful for me because I I'm like pushing the key board away everything's on a screen it feels very professional suddenly i'm writing much colder language less less like invested in the body language when i'm actually sort of leaning over my giant notebooks with my pen i i feel I feel as though I'm engaged in the process as an animal, meaning that all my senses are engaged. Um, my sense of smell is engaged. I can smell the paper. I can smell the ink. Um, my sense of feel is engaged because, you know, obviously I'm feeling the paper underneath my hand, but also the, the pen in my hand and, and it's constantly moving and sort of my body is sort of leaning over the page in a way. I'm hearing the sound of the action, like the scratch of, this is something I've never really thought of before, but the scratching of a pen on a paper really does, it feels almost onomatopoeic, right? It's almost like the ideas are coming out of me in that sort of animal scratching way, right? It's like it's emerging. Um, so all of these senses are sort of involved and that keeps me grounded in the body. It keeps me grounded in the sense of play and the sense of joy, not in the sense of needing to be perfect or needing to be complete. Yeah, I think they've done a study that actually proved that writing as opposed to typing taps into some part of your brain that typing doesn't tap into. Uh, I need to look up the study, but that makes total sense. And also your hand will be ready for signing all those thousands of copies of your books <laughs> because you've already built up that that callus on your finger that you need for all of that. So that stands you in good stead. That's um, true. Yeah. When, <laughs> when I uh, read that you were writing or that you were bringing out this literary historical fiction novel, Matrix, which you know, the story sort of starts in the, uh, I think it's 1158. Uh, I thought, oh, wow, I really wonder how Lauren is going to capture that voice. Because when we think about historical fiction, we think about how the language that the characters use has to be consistent with that time period, how it really needs to capture time and place and, and the language languages spoken then were French and Latin and English. And when I started reading, I was blown away. I was like, oh my God, Lauren has done the most genius thing with her dialogue to avoid having to be constrained in this way. Could you tell us about that? 
I love that you caught that. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, no, I for a while I was struggling really hard with how to um, to sh- to do the dialogue because you're right as you as you said. I mean, there is a mixture of languages at the time. I mean, in England in the Middle Ages, the nobility which Marie was part of would have been speaking French, an actual you know like French of the Ile de France and not the French of say Brittany or Maine or uh, Languedoc or anything. And it was all very very different French at the time, and they would have been multilingual. And then coming over to England, she would have had to learn English, and she would have had to write in Latin because the the lingua franca of the church, of course, was Latin. And so there would have been a mishmash, a patchwork of, of languages. A lot of hierarchy would have been shown in language. And my book, I didn't want to mess with that, right? I like I just because like it would have been wearisome and I it would have felt false, right? Like trying to replicate the, the French of the time in dialogue. So instead I did indirect dialogue and, and all of the, the dialogue is sort of told slantwise so that it can be encapsulated in the, the sort of more, the wiser archer, more arch, more wry voice of the, the omniscient uh, POV. Yeah, it was, it was genius. It was like, so for our listeners, it's kind of like this reported speech. So instead of dialogue being put in quotation marks, which is what we used to, or even, you know, there's a ton of writers like Sally Rooney who don't use quotation marks at all, but it was that the dialogue, you knew it was dialogue, but it was almost told in this reported speech, which was so consistent with the narrative voice. And like you say, Lauren, if you'd tried to do a narrative voice in one way and then the dialogue in another way, it would have been really inconsistent and jarring. And I think if you try to do it all that way, it would have been inaccessible. So seeing you do that was really masterful. It was a masterclass in in how you can make, you know, your dialogue fit fit what, what you're writing about. In general, you don't seem to be that big on dialogue because after I noticed this trick of yours and I was so blown away by it, I went back and I looked at your previous novel and there isn't a heck of a lot of dialogue on the page. Is it something that you personally purposely avoid? Is it just for you that delving into the character's mind and thoughts and the exposition is more interesting than dialogue? Yeah, I have really deep and probably idiosyncratic theories about dialogue, Um, which is that unless it actually complicates what's going on on the page or it it sort of shows the character in multiple ways it's not really necessary i actually like i'm much 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 more interested in the undercurrents and the things that are actually happening underneath the surface and i think a lot of dialogue often dialogue that you know i like sally rooney but i think a lot of her dialogue really is like skimming the surface and it's intentionally doing so right this is part of her project but I'm not interested in that. Right? I don't. I don't want to do that. I kind of want to talk about the the emotional things that are happening underneath. And once in a while, dropping in and sort of like testing the waters with the dialogue is a really good way of showing the reader what is happening underneath. But unless it's actually doing multiple things, I th- I find it. I don't even know what I find it. I think I find it cinematic in 
a reductive way. Yeah. So it has to, like, in order for a dialogue, to, and I, I actually often write huge pages of dialogue, and then I just, like, cut it down to almost nothing uh, in order to make sure that, that it's doing a huge amount of work if it's in there. So, yeah, you know, I have, it's it's a personal taste thing. I think everyone has different ideas about it. But what, what I'm interested in is character, and often character can be revealed in dialogue, but as long as, but if it, I think if it's not revealing sort of power structures in the way that power is um, maintained or modified or delineated, uh, I don't think the dialogue needs to be there. Yeah. So I have so many mock-ups in, in the book, so many, so many paragraphs that I underlined, et cetera. But something I want to talk about as well is the social commentary, you know, of your work. And this story takes place, you know, in the 1100s, but it's, I feel like there was almost this rage from being a woman in the US, especially living in Florida right now. I feel like it must be hugely enraging. I know I'm in Toronto and I'm filled with constant rage. So yeah. there, was this, there, there was this part here that I that I read and I just want to read it back to you um, and just so you can comment on it. So it says, Eleanor sighs, she drinks quietly for a time. She too relaxes and says that she truly wishes that Marie would give up this little folly of hers. This labyrinth is being seen as an act of aggression. Women act counter to all the laws of submission when they remove themselves from availability. This is what inflames Marie's enemies. And that just struck a huge chord because, I mean, it was obviously true then and it's still true today. Yes, it is. It is. But that's my vision of historical fiction, right? Historical fiction isn't sort of escapism. It's not like leaving today. It's speaking from the voice of the 21st century or the, the century in which you write it back through time and having uh, the time toward which you're, you're writing speak into the present day, right? So it's, it's a vibrational thing it's 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 like what you said earlier a tuning fork right like things things are actually um singing back and forth there's this a great i hope you don't mind my giving you a quote that i actually have on my desktop because i love it so much but it's ali smith who's a great great writer she she wrote once a work of art unfixes time the shaft opens the past and present exist in the same moment and we know as beings that we are connected and that is what i'm trying to do through historical fiction right so mm -hmm. that the the urgencies of today the um the pain of today right like the things that are animating my rage <laughs> of today have to go into the things that I'm writing, even if those things are, happen to be of the past, right? So, so I think that um, there's no like historical fiction is almost a misnomer because what book is not written through history, right? What there's no such thing as a historical fiction; it just doesn't exist, right? And and um, my friend Hernan Diaz said that, and as soon as he said that, I was like, oh my god, you're absolutely right. So it's almost as though everything that we write out of today does does talk about today because otherwise it's almost as though we're we're pretending and the I think good art has artifice in it but it doesn't pretend it's trying to speak as truthfully as possible at least that's that's the attempt right to to speak as truthfully as possible about the urgencies of the now yeah and you know for the listeners we see this most often in kind of dual uh, D-U-A-L. I know every time I say this, my listeners think I'm talking about jewelry. Uh, <laughs> dual timelines in terms of historical fiction that's juxtaposed against a, you know, 
present day narrative. And so in those kinds of stories, you see how the past and the present kind of affect each other. And, you know, what Lauren's done is she's done that without using a present day narrative. We as the readers provide that present day narrative as we're reading it. And we are seeing, you know, those notes striking a chord. Um, And that was also very, very masterfully done. You mentioned earlier the omniscient third person point of view. For me, it was felt very, very close to Marie most of the novel and then it was amazing it was like we were very very close to her. it was like the camera was zoomed in on her and then suddenly the camera would withdraw and on one page we'd get five different characters perspectives as that omniscient voice came in and then boom we'd zoom straight back in again which was which again is incredibly difficult to do and masterfully done in Fates and Furies you had a Greek chorus interjecting in key moments with these pithy omniscient commentary about the characters. So can we talk about that as well and how much fun you seem to have with your point of view? Oh, it's so much fun, right? Like it's the it's the most fun you can have because I think, you know, we live in a relatively secular society. Not all of us are secular. I think I, I used to be immensely religious and I sort of poured that fervency into literature. But the only time we can have a God's eye view of the world is through this this writing, right? Like the, the writing process and sort of playing and having fun with omniscience. And I loved, you know, I, I am profoundly in love with, with narratives, um, just all narratives, basically. Uh, you know, I, I cannot get enough. And one of the, the, the things that I love the most in the narratives that come to us out of the, the world of the ancient Greeks is this feeling of living simultaneously within layers of time. Right. So there's there's the time of the gods, uh, which is a vast like, you know, I I see it as almost like a person floating on the top of the sea, looking down and and sort of seeing through the clear water, all of the creatures swimming beneath. And then there's, you know, the the mortals on the ground who are the starfish. Right. And. Um, the gods can see everything and the mortals in the ground can see everything. And then there's the storytellers who's sort of hidden, but is also invested in the story who has an even greater vision, right? Beyond the gods in some ways, because uh, we have outgrown the Greek gods. And so like it's someone maybe seeing everything from the, a drone in the sky, eagle's eye view. So it's it's living within layers of time. And I think that fiction in particular is the art of sculpting time through words. And um, having the the capability, having the the flexibility to to move through different layers of time is what something that is the the prerogative of the the writer of fiction and the great joy of writing fiction. I think absolutely, that was so brilliantly put. I'm I'm going to copy that all down. We're going to put it on our website <laughs> for our listeners. We've come to the end of our time with Lauren. Of course, we could have chatted with you all day. Thank you so much, Lauren. It's been such a joy chatting with you. For our listeners, get Matrix. It's absolutely amazing. You know, masterclass in so many elements of of craft, and uh, we can't wait to see what you do next, Lauren. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. 
news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. 
they will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format, so if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.